Hi and welcome to another great life impacting message from Bridge Evangelical Christian Church. For more great content and to learn more about our church, visit becc.church. Enjoy. Welcome to you this morning and welcome to anyone here visiting. We're just uh, grateful that you could come and be with us. And uh, we trust your time this morning will be a time where where Christ will be made much of for you. As Des mentioned this morning, our need is Christ. Without Christ, we are. So the question is, do you want to be nothing? And if so, there's the answer. Forget about Christ. We know you don't want to be nothing. Therefore, Christ is the answer. As we come this morning, we have before us the, the, the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae. You have your Bibles, open them to... Uh, the book of Colossians, if you haven't already, chapter 4. <clears throat> and we have before us the letter the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, better known as the Epistle to the Colossians. And as we've seen previously, we understand that this letter was sent to the Colossians to instruct, uh, to strengthen them in Christ. That was despite the opposition they faced from certain people who were seeking to minimize the supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus. You now I believe that even in our day and age, there is nothing new under the sun, and that the effort to minimize the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is still prevalent in our day and age. In fact, you don't have to look too deep to see this. We've, you know, we, we've recently celebrated Christmas, and the birth of Christ uh, is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? But even Christmas continues to be attacked to the point that some are working hard to eradicate the greeting Merry Christmas and replace it with, I'll be honest with you, whether it's Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays is not that great importance for me because salvation is found in no other name but Christ. Whether people choose to say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays, without Christ it means nothing. In fact, once you have Christ, it still means nothing. But what we have is a constant onslaught against the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus is supreme and that Jesus is enough. As I've said many times, take away everything that you think makes you a Christian. And if you have not Christ, then you've never been a Christian. If you take away everything that you believe makes you kind of a Christian, but you have Christ, then that's all that matters. So we have this constant onslaught against the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. Therefore, Jesus told the disciples that this would be the norm, didn't he? That it would be normal for, for Christians to, to see Christ being attacked. And so he said, according to John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you need to know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so this is nothing new, folks. It's been happening since the Garden of Eden when the serpent put doubt in the minds of Adam and Eve regarding the sovereign authority of God, regarding God's word. So since the beginning of time, as we know it, there has always been an assault on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. And for the Christian, there should be no surprises here. And the assault is always to steer people from trusting that Christ is enough. That what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11, when he said, And in him, that's in Christ, you have been made 
It means you are complete in Christ. Nothing needs to be added to you. Do you get that? But that only comes in being in Christ. And then he says, he is the head over all rule and authority. You know what? For the ungodly of this world, this is hogwash. In other words, it's absolute rubbish. For the unregenerate mind to comprehend that a person requires the help of another to make them complete. That goes against every doctrine of their fallen nature. But you know, to those of us in Christ, it is power, it is strength, it is hope, and it is joy for us to know that we are complete in Christ. Because as we explore the depths of our own hearts, we soon realize and we soon acknowledge that we are indeed needy and helpless souls and that Christ is our only hope. And so this beats against the grain of the unregenerate world. It contradicts their belief. You see, they say that strength comes from within and that all you need to do is just release it. They say that you are your greatest hope. They say that, that you are the author of your joy. Just name it and claim it. And yet the Christian will quickly respond and say, No, Christ is. So it's to this backdrop that the Apostle Paul writes. It's to a people who are in desperate need of sound doctrine, in desperate need of sound theology, in desperate need of Christ. And so in much of the letter, the Apostle ensures the people at Colossae are given sound doctrine, sound theology, sound instruction. A theology which points to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ to meet their greatest needs. But it also follows through with practical application. You know why? Because sound theology always bears fruit. And you know it's no different for us. Our theology should drive our ministry. What we believe should affect what we do. When we believe certain things, they should affect certain actions, right? It's not enough to say that you believe something and yet you do nothing. And then what you do is really a telltale about what you actually do believe. This is no different to someone wishing to become a doctor. They must first study. They must have a sound understanding of biology, anthropology, medicine, and a number of other things before they can even begin to practice. I mean, you and I don't want someone who claims to be a doctor but has absolutely no sound understanding of medicine, do we? Because we know what the result will be, possibly seen that many times on the news the same applies to the christian our level of understanding will match our level of practice it has to some will say to you we don't need theology we're not all theologians rubbish when you became a christian you picked up your bible you started reading you started believing something you became a theologian because theology simply means the study of god if you're not a theologian, then you're not a studier of God. You're not a student of God. We're all theologians at different levels, aren't we? Theology is just simply the study of God and all that pertains to God. So in some respects, we are all theologians because we are all students of God. So theology is necessary. It's important. It's a part of who we are. But theology has out. Theology must be free. It's no good being just filled up with head knowledge takes you nowhere. That's something else. I would dare say that that's not even Christian. So the, the same thing applies to the Christian. Our level of understanding all will match our level of practice. And so in this letter, the Apostle Paul balances this out by giving theology in the first two chapters and then 
some practical application in the last two chapters. And the Apostle Paul had, a, had it was kind of the norm for him to do that, isn't it? I mean, when you read the, the book of Ephesians, you see the same, same thing happening. The division in the book of Ephesians is exactly the same. He gives theology in the first two chapters, practical output in the last two, uh, first three chapters, and then practical output in the last three. But the Apostle Paul had that pattern of doing that. You know, it's like a, it's like you know a wife decides she wants a bookshelf, and so she goes to IKEA, buys this really cool bookshelf, takes it home to her lovely husband, and says, "Darling, you know." Put this together for me. Husband comes along and goes, yeah, no problem. He puts it all together. And she goes and put her first book on it. The whole thing collapses. You know why? Because he didn't follow the instructions. He thought, wow, you know, I've got this. <laughs> That's what most of us men do. Yeah, we don't need the instructions. We'll just, you know, put it together. That's 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 doing something without the theory behind it. And many, many live the Christian life like that. They are doing stuff without the theory behind it, and it ends up becoming pragmatic. Pragmatism just means that the end kind of justifies the means, that it doesn't matter how we do it, as long as we get the result. Which sound doctrine is not like that, folks. We have the means here. We have the instruction right here on how we should do it. God's word. It is God's word to us to say, well, this is how you do it. So theology must perceived application. So in this letter, the apostle balances this out for us. But before he gets into the practical stuff, he begins chapter 3 by reiterating the necessity for sound theology. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, begins like this. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, that means if you are a Christian, because only Christians get raised up with Christ, he says, therefore, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And as you might remember, the Apostle Paul begins chapter 3 with two critical imperatives or, or two commands from verses 1 and 2 when he said, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Keep seeking. Don't stop. Don't think that you have enough. Don't think that you have all of a sudden matured and you don't need to mature anymore. Never think that you are perfect. You've not reached perfection. Do you know how we know? Because you are still here and you are not Jesus. So he says, keep seeking. Keep looking there. Keep reminding yourselves of where you are. Then he says, set your mind on the things above. What do we mean the things above? You know, we're not talking about the ceiling. Well, in the context, it's talking about Christ. Set your mind on Christ. That's why Hebrews 12, verse 2, the author there says to fix your eyes on Jesus. So the Apostle Paul is saying the same kind of thing, to fix your eyes on Christ, set your mind on him, not on the things that are all around us. Therefore, what we have here is the theology behind what follows. This is the theology. This is what it means to, you, you can't follow on from this without having your mind fixed on Christ. Anyone who does is just doing it out of religious uh, uh, practice. It's just all religion. 
to think that you have to do this and, and not think about Christ, not set your mind on Christ. You're just being a religious person. And so it's important, it's imperative, the Apostle Paul says, to fix, to set your mind on Christ before you do anything. That's why we here, our, our vision for 2020 is to exalt Christ, express Christ in our characters. Anything else we do outside of that is not, has no eternal weight or value without just as Des said this morning. So a mindset on Christ puts to death, according to chapter 3, verse 5 of Colossians, it puts to death immorality. Do you have immorality in your lives? Put it to death. Your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye's causing you to sin, pluck it out. Not literally, I think it's figuratively there. Otherwise, we'd all be coming to church next Sunday blind and, and lame and... <laughs> Because we are all sinners falling short of the glory of God. And that's not to put anyone down. That's just the reality. In fact, that should cause us to put our minds. It says if you're committing immorality, you put it to death. And then according to chapter 3, verse 18, if you're a wife, then a mindset on Christ finds that submission to her husband is not about slavery. It's not about being a, a servant. But it means that she is there to support her husband, to encourage her husband so that he will set his mind on Christ. It means that every time she sees his Bible closed, she will encourage him to open his Bible. Every time she sees him snoozing on the couch, she'll give him a nudge and say, wake up and pray. Why? Because she knows and she believes that's the best thing for him. And then according to chapter 3, verse 19, if you're a husband whose mind is set on Christ, you will love your wife. And you will love her in a way which imitates Christ's love for the church. That means you won't treat her like she is your slave. That means that you won't treat her like she's just there to fulfill your needs. But you will treat her like Christ loves the church. And how did he love the church? Died. And if you're a child and you're in Christ and your mind is set on Christ, according to chapter 3 verse 20, Guess what you will do, kids? He says, you will obey your parents. Why? Because your eyes are and obedience to Christ means obedience. If you're a father and your mind is set on Christ, he goes on to say, you will do the best that you can do to not exasperate your children, but to point them to Christ. And so keeping that in mind, we come to our passage this morning. And for the Christian, their minds are to be set on Christ. They are to keep seeking the things above where, where Christ is. Paul then says in chapter 4, verse 2, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door to us for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Because as we consider Colossians 4, the mindset on Christ affects our prayer life. That's why the Apostle Paul said, devote yourselves, the application to the theology. The mindset on Christ, you will pray and you will devote yourself to prayer. Now the word devotion implies a strong attachment, an allegiance or an affection for someone or something. So to devote oneself involves the allocation of one's time and one's resources. But there, there is a giving of oneself. One who is devoted is ardent, caring, committed, concerned, constant, dedicated, loyal, staunch, steadfast, and true. One who is devoted is not disloyal, 
They are not indifferent. They are not uncommitted. That word devotion is a challenging term for us because it confronts the heart of a Christian. It begs us to ask ourselves, are we devoted to Christ? Do we love him? Has he affected our hearts in such a way that we are devoted to him in everything? It means that the one who draws our attention has our hearts. It's that age-old tale of a man who is madly in love with the woman of his dreams. Guys, you know what this is like. But she grabs the attention of his heart night and day. And he will go to any means, any means, to be with her, to, to hear her voice, to see her face. Is that Christ for you? Is that who Christ is for you? Will you go through anything, to any means, to hear his voice, to see his face? But every now and again, something gets thrown in the works there, and you know, we can have busy lives, don't we? We live busy lives these days, sometimes too busy. Well, prayer is an act of humility. It is to be like the beggar who has great need for food. You've seen a beggar begging for food? I have. You know what? Out goes pride. When you are starving, you get rid of your pride. There's no pride in begging. It's all humility. It's like a, a beggar begging for food who has great need for food. It, it's like the child who, who can't solve their homework and it's due the next day. They have a great need. Uh, it's like the man out at sea shipwrecked who has a great need to be rescued. Prayer is like that. And it's humbling and it's humbling in the sense that, that we are dependent on someone greater than us to provide for us what we ourselves cannot provide for ourselves. Why do you pray? Why do you cry out to God? Is it because you have a great need that you can't meet? Is it because he is your only hope? That's it, isn't it? Let me remind you, the only way to the Father is through the Son. Without Christ, you don't get there. Without Christ, your prayers don't make it to God the Father because the only way to the Father, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father in heaven except by me. That's why we pray at the end of our prayers in the name of Jesus. And then we say, Amen. Let it be so. So it is humbling in the sense that we are dependent on someone greater than us to provide for us what we ourselves can't provide for ourselves. Therefore, humility drives us to cry out to God, just like humility drives the beggar to cry out for food, hoping that someone will bring it to them. So the Apostle Paul says, pray, devote yourselves to prayer. And then he adds that they should keep alert. And immediately we're reminded of Gethsemane, aren't we? When we hear those words, keep alert associated with prayer and we're reminded of Gethsemane when Jesus prayed prior to his betrayal prior to his crucifixion and then Matthew records it in Matthew 26 39 uh, to 40 41 and he said there and he that's Jesus went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed saying father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as you will and he, that's Jesus, came to the disciples and found them snoring, <laughs> sleeping, found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. 
Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, what a challenge that can be for the weary soldier in Christ who has trodden the long path of life and ministry and feels they have no energy to rub their knees on the carpet. And yet it is at that very hour that the soldier in Christ should be alert. It is when they are weak and tired that the enemy is most likely to pounce. And then I'm reminded of Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 9 when Nehemiah and the people were rebuilding the wall of the city. Remember that? And Nehemiah 4.9 says, But we prayed to our God, and because of them, that's the, the enemy, we set up a guard against him day and night. So you know what? Not even their enemies hindered them from praying. They stayed alert on guard so that their communication and their devotion with God would not be broken. And Paul says here to the Colossians, keep alert, be aware of our surroundings, you know. I think it even means that, to be aware of what's going on around us and to pray and to pray and to pray. And when we're chatting here after church and somebody is saying, you know, they're having a hard time, a hard week, that should be our response. Prayer. Let me pray for you. Let me take you to the one who can meet your need. Be alert to those things. So that's how Nehemiah dealt with it. He put a guard against the enemy day and night so that they wouldn't be hindered in their prayer time. Even as they soldiered on to rebuild, rebuild the wall, they ensured that nothing would keep them from prayer. Folks, relationship is two ways. And we hear from God through his word. That's the only way we hear from God, through his word and through the, the proclamation of his word, through the teaching of his word. But there, that's, that's the sure way of knowing what God says. Any other way is unsure. Any other way you shouldn't trust. I know people say, well, God spoke to me and said, you know, this, this and that. That's dangerous. Why? Who is the prince of the air? How do you know it's not Satan speaking to you? God may have spoken to you. Check it out and see if it matches what he says here. You know, God doesn't contradict himself. His word does not contradict itself. Even though there are paradoxes and, you know, there are ironies and things like that, they may seem like it's a contradiction. It's never a contradiction. God never contradicts himself. If you've heard something coming in your ear, doesn't line up with this, forget about that. Trust in this. And so the Apostle Paul says, keep alert. And then as I've already said, prayer is an act of humility. That's why the Apostle Paul says to have an attitude of so keeping alert, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert, and then have an attitude of thanksgiving, praise. Even that is an attitude of humility. Notice that when you say thank you to the Lord, you are thanking him for something that you didn't do. When you give thanks to God, you are thanking him for something that he did, not you. You thank him for your salvation and your redemption. Who redeemed you? He did. Who saved you? Who sanctifies you? How do you bear fruit? Because of what he's done. And so we always give thanks. It's an act of humility that says, wow, I've done none of this. Otherwise, you know, our prayers would be, be different, wouldn't they? We would be saying, uh, Dear God, thank you that you helped me to save me. Dear God, thank you that you helped me to, uh, so that I could sanctify me. I know we, we never pray like that. We say, dear God, thank you that you saved me. Dear God, thank you that you are sanctifying me. That this is all a work of yours. 
you see how that changes, how, how that's more humbling rather than being an effort, uh, even a co-effort. And I was having a chat with someone the other day, talking about, you know, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Are we responsible for our salvation? Are we responsible to repent? Does the Bible say and command us to repent? Of course it does. Does the Bible also say that we are saved by grace alone? Of course it does. So you have these two, what appear to be contradictions, right? Because either God saved us or we did something to save ourselves. And we were just having this chat and, and, and it was really interesting because we came to the conclusion, the both of us, that human responsibility must always be subjected to God's sovereignty. Otherwise, we put human responsibility up there with God's sovereignty. Do you know what happens? We become co-equal in salvation and therefore we contradict the majority of Scripture. The psalmist said that salvation belongs to the Lord. Jesus said to his disciples when they struggled about the rich young ruler who walked away, instead of Jesus saving him, instead of that man coming to faith, all he had to do was sell all his goods, Jesus said, and give to the poor. How difficult is that? That's not very hard, folks. But he walked away and Jesus had compassion on him and he says to his disciples, with man, referring to salvation, with man it is what? Impossible, but not with God. So that's a very humbling. And why is it important to know that? Well, humility is the cloak of the Christian. We don't get that theology right. We don't practice it right. Humility is the cloak of the Christian. It's not about putting myself up there and making much of me. It's accepting the fact that I am nothing. Is that a bad thing? Never. Never unless you're not saved. But it's never a bad thing for the Christian. In fact, in, in uh, Peter's letter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, you, you can turn there if you want, or I'm going to read it anyway, but it says this, 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you, that's all of you, Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to pride. But he gives grace to the... So you might think that this is about young men in the church submitting themselves to older men. But in the context it's about submitting to the rule of the elders in the church. Subject yourself to, the, to your elders. But then the Apostle Peter goes on to say, And all of you clothe yourselves in humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace. To who? It's like the beggar, remember, has nothing. Crying out for something. Waiting for someone to come along with a bit of bread that he might eat. Clothe yourselves in humility, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what we need to understand here is that these verbs, subject, submit, however you have it in your Bibles, and, and the other verb, clothe yourselves in humility, these are commands, folks. These are imperatives. These are things that God commands us to do. But they are in the passive voice. These aren't active verbs. They are, they are passive verbs. They are passive commands, if you like. That is, they are a work of grace, so that no man can boast before God that God keeps us humble, because if he didn't, then he would oppose us. 
because we would easily jump to the top of the list and with all our pride and become proud people. And so by an act of grace, God keeps us humble. You know, you look at how Paul's request in Colossians chapter 4. Paul says this, he, he says, uh, verse 3, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. Paul doesn't pray and, and ask these people, you know, like pray for us and pray that God will open up the cell door. He's in prison. He doesn't pray for his quick release from prison as most people would. He doesn't pray for a more comfortable cell, maybe with, you know, a big screen TV in the corner, coffee and, and cake on the bench there. But he prays for an open door for the gospel. Humility, folks. This man accepted where he was by the grace of God that God had put in there. Proud man would pray, God, get me out of here. I don't deserve to be here. Now, that's unfortunately how we often pray, isn't it? We pray that God will take away our pain. We pray that God will, uh, will heal us. We pray that God will make us probably wealthy. Pray in a prosperity style that we want life to be just cruising, easy, comfortable. So we pray that when things go terribly wrong and terribly bad, we say, God, what are you doing? This Christian life is meant to be good, meant to be happy, it's meant to be easy. I didn't you know, become a Christian so I could suffer. I became a Christian so I could be blessed. God was making those men weak, keeping them humble. Because, you know, as soon as we find strength in ourselves, the very first thing we will do, we will neglect suffering, our poor knees rubbing against the carpet. In his letter to the church at Colossae, and I'll end here, the Apostle Paul talked about the the, the thorn in his flesh, didn't he? And that man went down on the carpet three times because three times he prayed and he asked God to take this, this problem away from him. He asked God, "Take I, I don't want to suffer anymore, God. I mean, this man had suffered much. Shipwreck. You know, uh, persecuted. Gosh, none of us have even had a, a taste of anything of what he's had fell down on his knees three times and he cried out to God to take it from him. And God answered his prayer. No, he did. He answered his prayer. He answered his prayer and God said to him, no, no, no. You need to stay weak. You need to continue to suffer. You need to struggle. Why? Because when you are weak, the Lord said, that's when you are strong. When you are weak, that's when you are strong. Folks, that's good theology for us. We really have to guard our hearts and our, our prayers against praying, you know, Lord, get me out of this. Our prayer should be, Lord, help me to trust you in this. Help me to trust you. Things look terrible, Lord. My health is declining. My ministry looks like it's going downhill. And people are saying, oh, look, you're failing. Our offering is down. And people are saying, oh, we're very unsuccessful and failing. Someone once said that, you know, if you measure the success of a church by the offering, look at the Catholics. <laughs> 
richest church in the world, right? The most spiritually successful church in the world? You have to say no. Never measure the church's success by the offering. Never measure it by the number of people in the pews. Measure the success of the church by their faithfulness to Christ with their eyes fixed on Him continually, constantly, and it will be seen in the way we pray, in the way we evangelize, in the way we live for Him and point others to Him. Why? Why? Why is this Christ so worth it? Why can we trust this Christ who we have our eyes fixed on? Turn with me to Colossians 1.13 and let's be reminded of who this Christ is. And it says, Therefore he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. It's God working through his Son. Verse 14, In whom, in his Son, we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Oh Lord, let's just pause there. Is that not enough? To know that we are redeemed in the Son, have forgiveness of sins, knowing that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who is good, except Christ, except God. Verse 15, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. That's supremacy, folks. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, with the things on earth or things in heaven. And then Colossians 2, verse 9 to 10, we read this. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That's in Christ. All the fullness. And in him, you, Christian, have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. You are lacking nothing. There is nothing that you lack in Christ. If there is a lack that you have, it is not because of Christ, because of our, our own fallenness, it's because of our own flesh. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But dear people, as we look ahead to whether it's another year, ministry, whether it's another day in life, good theology drives what we do. And as we've heard here, it drives us to pray on our knees. 
the people that are tribes of praise to be more Christ-centered rather than self-centered. Let's, let's try our best to stop praying those prayers of prosperity. You know, Lord, help me out of this problem. And let's trust the Lord that when we are weak, then we are strong because his strength is perfected in our weakness. Let's pray. I hope that helps you as you live for the Lord. Theology drives our ministry. It drives how we live for Christ. Don't forget that. What you believe will come out in what you do. If you believe the Bible teaches us to evangelize, guess what you will do? It's only simple, isn't it? One plus one equals two. If you believe the Bible teaches us to pray, to devote ourselves to prayer, what will we do? Devote ourselves to prayer. If it says to put to death immorality, what will you do? Put to death immorality. <clears throat> if you don't believe that, then come and have a word with me after. I'd like to pray for you. I'd like to pray for you because you may not know Christ. You may not be known by Christ. So you have a greater need than just prayer. You have a greater need than just living the Christian life. You actually have a great need for Jesus. So feel free to come and talk to me afterwards. But let's pray and then we'll sing our last song. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word this morning. And what a challenge it is, Lord, to, to do your commands. You command us throughout your word to do things. And the religious man will say he can do it without you. But we know that we can do nothing apart from you. Therefore, we thank you that many of the commands in the Bible are passive, that you actually do the work in us and through us, because if we left it to ourselves, Lord, we would utterly fail, as we often do. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that Christ is enough and that we are complete in him, that we need nothing else to add to the Christian life. What we have, we give back to you for your glory, for our joy this morning. In Jesus' name.